Getting pulled over is stressful. Have you ever wondered what could happen if there was an attorney in my passenger seat? With TurnSignal, attorneys provide on-demand, face-to-face guidance to drivers during traffic stops and after accidents. The app records interaction and connects lawyers to members of the community when it matters most. Whether you're an attorney trying to give back or a firm committed to increase access to justice, TurnSignal makes it easy. With TurnSignal, we can ensure that civil rights are protected for everyone, every time. For details, contact TurnSignal. That's T-U-R-N-S-I-G-N-L. Or find us online at TurnSignal.com. Every action matters. Get TurnSignal today. Welcome to Find Laws, Don't Judge Me, the show about the law in real life. I'm and your fake host this week, Andy Leonetti, and I am joined in the booth or the, the online booth by uh, Bay the Heat Metha. Hello. Howdy, Andy. And Joe Fabush. Hey, it's good to be in the booth in the sky with you all. Yeah. Um, and we're all in the cloud. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> All right, Dad. Yeah, low hanging fruit. <laughs> um, so this week, uh, imagine just imagine that I'm uh, doing a commercial for an after-school special or an episode of Saved by the Bell because this <laughs> week and next week we have a very special episode of Find Laws. Don't judge me. Yeah, we're uh, <laughs> we're hashtag blessed. <laughs> Did I use that right? I think I, I think so. I think I so. I, uh, I don't even have a Twitter. Why do I try to be relevant? We are just blessed to have not one but two guest expert legal scholars on the Ninth Amendment. Which one? I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> this mystery amendment that no one's ever heard of, right? Because I don't know about I don't know about you, Joe, but my law school went straight from eight to ten. I don't think we ever mentioned the Ninth Amendment. Yeah, and I'll, I'll always get questions about different amendments from people. Nobody has ever asked me about the Ninth Amendment before, and I don't think I've thought about it um, maybe in my entire life. So I'm going to read the Ninth Amendment to our <laughs> listeners Please now, do. just Please because do. nobody, including me, knew it. And the Ninth Amendment is as follows. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. That's it. So. Short and sweet and overlooked uh, until apparently our president Biden uh, recently invoked it. Uh, not for the first time. Um, he's 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 had a history with this. And that's why we're doing this episode. Um, back in like the Democratic debate era, like two years ago, he said, quote, the only reason women have the right to choose is because it's determined that there are unenumerated rights coming from the Ninth Amendment mm-hmm. in the Constitution. Yeah. And he just alluded recently again to um, wanting a judicial nominee who knows the Ninth Amendment and can use it. It's likely that Katanji Brown-Jackson is going to get asked about it this week. Maybe maybe in the in two different ways from Democratic and Republican senators on the Judiciary Committee, um, I think. Yeah. And <laughs> this amendment, you know, it's it's a member of a Bill of Rights, but it's definitely one of the most overlooked amendments to our entire Constitution up there with, I think, the third. I probably, you guys know that we probably should do an episode on the third. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the the two like redheaded stepchildren of the bill. I don't know that one either. <laughs> oh, quartering. Yeah. Quartering oh, nice. One. Yeah, the quartering one. Nice. Yeah, I love that one. The ninth is like kind of been overshadowed by the fourteenth, which is 
you know, it's kind of has stolen its thunder about these unenumerated rights, which it also encompasses. But the single sentence that you read, Andy, it seems to promise that American people have constitutional rights beyond those explicitly stated in the other amendments. And so given the potential significance of such a statement, you might wonder why you've never heard of it. So what does that mean? Does it mean a right to health care, a right to an abortion, a right to <laughs> free community college? So the right to privacy kind of had its origins in encompassing in the Ninth Amendment with a case called Griswold v. Connecticut in the 60s, I think. Um, that was sort of about um, the right to, to, to contraception. And now, in the wake of the court calling on reopening Roe, a lot of people are, you know, maybe scared about if Roe fails, what's next? Is Griswold next? Are we going to are we going to lose our right to birth control? Um, but yeah, that 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 case um, and a concurrence, uh, you know, talked about the Ninth Amendment. It didn't rely on the Ninth Amendment and its holding. But um, a lot of people are speculating like, OK, well, maybe if, you know, maybe if Roe fails, and, and, and the 14th Amendment doesn't no longer provides this right to privacy. Like maybe you one would think that there is room for the Ninth Amendment. I don't know. Who knows? But basically, we're going to interview some professors who know more than we do, which is a very <laughs> low bar. <laughs> yeah. So this week, this week, we will be featuring uh, an interview that Veda He very ably conducted mm, with debatable Professor Randy Barnett of Georgetown Law School. And also stay tuned next week for part two of our interview series on the Ninth Amendment, in which Andy and I get to interview um, another special guest, Professor Brian C. Kalt of Michigan State Law, who talks about the Ninth Amendment in Congress and what the legislature should do with it. I do just want to say that uh, it's not just us, the Supreme Court, and a lot of other people don't know what to do with the Ninth Amendment oh, yeah. either. And so it's very interesting to hear from somebody who has spent a long time and a lot of scholarship and has some ideas on what the Ninth Amendment does mean, what it has meant historically, and also ways that we can use it either as a check on the legislative branch mm -hmm. yeah, and how judges should be able to use it. So it's, it's a really fascinating discussion, and uh, I, I will put in a little bit of a note. Um, it, it does come at you pretty fast, this interview. So um, turn up the volume and get ready to uh, learn a great deal. Uh, so <laughs> Crank it up, listeners. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, rock out to this one because this is a great episode and I think you're, you're all going to really enjoy it. Welcome to the first of our two-part interview series on the Ninth Amendment. Today, I'm honored to introduce our guest, Randy E. Barnett, Professor of Constitutional Law at Georgetown and the Faculty Director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. He's also a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship in Constitutional Studies, and notably, he argued the famous 2004 medical marijuana case of Gonzalez v. Rake before the United States Supreme Court, which I still remember studying in con law, and I don't remember that much from 1L, guys. Professor Barnett is the author of a dozen books and articles, including two articles we'll refer to in this interview, one from the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy in 1989, titled Two Conceptions of the Ninth Amendment, and the other from Texas Law Review in 2006, titled The Ninth Amendment, It Means What It Says. He's also recently published a new book 
called The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, Its Letter and Spirit. We'll talk more about that later, and it actually has a lot of overlap with the Ninth Amendment interpretation. But without further ado, welcome, Professor Barnett. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Now, you aren't particularly shy about identifying as an originalist. Um, As myself, a recent law school graduate, I definitely experienced labels like originalist or textualist or intentionalist. And um, I've, I've seen that those kind of labels get a lot of maybe negative associations from what was a generally progressive student body at Michigan Law, which is where I went. But even you know, within just one of these, even within originalism, there's not just one type. Um, As you allude to in your literature, you describe that there are at least three distinctive originalist approaches, original framers intent, the original ratifiers understanding, and the original public meaning. And that last one you employ, the original public meaning, you employ that to your own constitutional methodology. If you wouldn't mind elaborating a little bit about all three approaches and maybe telling us why you favor that last one over the first two. All right. Well, the original public meeting approach is the dominant approach amongst originalists. I would say every judge who has said that, who has described themselves as an originalist is an original public meaning originalist. Uh, So some of this is sort of inside baseball among originalists. The biggest distinction is between an older form of originalism that actually pre-exists the term originalism itself, uh, where some scholars um, in the 70s, let's say, uh, were stressing the intentions of the framers, and they were attempting to answer um, what judges should do today based on how the framers of um, of the text in question would decide cases today. It was kind of a hypothetical thought experiment that that was called framers intent uh, because the issue is you were supposed to carry the framers intent forward to resolving cases today so if for example uh, the framers of the 14th amendment did not believe fully in women's equality with respect to all things therefore the amendment today should not be referred to uh, should not be interpreted as uh, referring to women's equality Um, This approach to constitutional interpretation was largely rejected um, in the 1990s. um, It's actually quite a long, 20 years ago. Uh, It's amazing to me, law professors still teach it to their students today. What has replaced it is original public meaning originalism, which is the view that what matters is the meaning the text had uh, to the public at the time it was adopted. Um, what would a competent speaker of the language have thought the information conveyed by the text was? Um, so, for example, um, uh, in, the t- in the Constitution, uh, the text refers to dollars. It has, says jury trials are available in suits that are greater than $20. Well, today, when we use the term dollar, we mean a Federal Reserve note. There were no Federal Reserve notes at the time this was written. What did dollar mean then? Well, dollar meant then the amount of silver in a Spanish silver dollar. Not, this is not immediately obvious to the today's reader, uh, but if you were to think that when you read the text of the Constitution, it means Federal Reserve notes, you'd be misreading the text. It would not. That's not really what it says. The same thing is true with the term domestic violence. Um, the, con- the Constitution gives uh, the federal government the power to uh, call out the militia to deal with domestic violence in a, inside a state. Well, today, the first thing you'd think of when you heard about domestic violence yeah, is, is spouse abuse. It's very different. But, but that's not, if you read spouse abuse into the Constitution in that provision, you would be misreading it. It meant, it meant violence in the streets. So 
that's what originalism is. It's the inform the public meaning originalism is what is the meaning the words would have had to the general public, uh, uh, which meaning competent speakers of the language. And this would be everybody. This would be men, women, um, fr um, free African-Americans, enslaved African-Americans mm -hmm. who spoke English. It would all mean uh, unless they spoke a, a different language like some German-Americans did. Um, they, they, this is all the meaning that would be conveyed to them. So that's what original meaning is. It answers some of the criticisms mm -hmm. that are made of originalism. You can right. immediately see how, yeah. uh, because we're not bound by how the people who wrote the constitution would have applied it in particular cases. It's our job to take the meaning they put into the text of the constitution. And it's our job to apply it in particular cases. And I imagine another argument for employing the public meaning uh, approach is that there's just more evidence as to what the public meaning was instead of maybe trying to read the ratifiers or the framers' minds where there's not textual evidence of it. Yeah. One of the traditional objections to the framers' intent approach that was made in 1980 in an article in the Stanford Law Review by Paul Brest, who coined the term originalism, actually, something he was criticizing, um, was that we can't sum up all the intentions mm -hmm. of the, we can't discover much less add them all together and reach some collective intention on the basis of individual intentions. Well, that's all true if what you're talking about um, is applications to particular situations, which is what we're called upon to do today. But if what we're talking about is their communicative intention, basically what information did they intend to communicate? Well, you just look at what the meaning of the words were that they communicated. Um, and even Brest in his original article said that's a perfectly sensible way of uh, interpreting the Constitution. Um, so uh, that's what public meaning originalism is. And uh, it's the reason, the fact that it responds to some of these criticisms is the reason why it's the predominant view of originalism today. Now, is are there what other arguments would there be apart from just more, you know more evidence to that methodology? Is it more democratic? You know, what are other as opposed to you know gaining a sort of oligarchical approach from the framers and the ratifiers? Okay, so this would it would be helpful if I define originalism now for mm -hmm. you, give you my definition of originalism. Sure. I can do it in one sentence, uh, and that is that the meaning of the Constitution should remain the same until it's properly changed by amendment. Let me say that again. The meaning of the Constitution should remain the same until it's properly changed. And the proper way to change it is by amendment. So there's two um, uh, claims that are actually buried into that one sentence. One is descriptive and one is normative. The descriptive claim is that the meaning of the text is the meaning it had when it was adopted. That's a descriptive claim of how, how language works. It's what, it goes back to my example of what dollar means in the Constitution. It has the meaning it had when it was put in there. It meant a unit of, of silver equivalent to the Spanish silver dollar. That's what it meant. However, that's not the only part of that statement, because what it also says is the meaning of, the, of that original meaning should be followed by today's people who are called upon to apply the Constitution. In other words, the original meaning is one thing. Whether you should follow it, the original meaning, is a separate claim. That's a normative claim. So mm -hmm. for example, if you want to know what the Confederate Constitution read, the ordinary, you'd, you'd give it its original meaning, wouldn't you? I mean, there's all these provisions favoring slavery in the federal, in the Confederate Constitution. Well, you, what it says is what it said when it was adopted. However, nobody thinks we should follow it today. And so sure. the normative argument is separate. So when you, what you asked me 
was what are the normative reasons for following the original meaning of the text? Yes, exactly. Right. So once you've teased out the two claims, you realize one is descriptive and one is normative. Collapsing the two claims is confusing. Yeah. But, and I guess it's uh, it might but, be inappropriate to assume if one identifies as an originalist, then they think that this norm that, that it's, you know, that one should follow an original. Yes. Oh, no, no. Yeah. Originalism has both claims. One is this is what it means. Mm -hmm. And the second is you should follow what it means. That's so there are two claims, including normative. But now here's what I'm building up to. There are multiple normative arguments for why you should follow the original meaning. Not everybody agrees about all the normative arguments. I tend to agree with more than one of these normative arguments. So you can have more than one reason for doing something. There could be, it could be a good idea for several reasons. And in fact, there are several normative arguments um, uh, one of which is maybe related to democracy, but only, I, I, th I don't think that's the strongest one. H how about this one? Judges take an oath. All, in fact, everybody that, uh, that gets power under the constitution only does so in return for them taking an oath to obey the constitution. Right. Give me this power and I promise I will obey the constitution. Well, what does the constitution mean in that sentence? When I say I will, I, 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 I pledge to uphold this constitution, uh, meaning, you know, the one I'm holding up in my hand now, which your audience can't see. Um, you just carry that with you wherever you go, huh? Well, it's, it's really sitting here on my workstation <laughs> for sure. Um, uh, so when I say I'm, I, I pledge to follow this constitution, does it mean whatever I say it means? That would not be much of a pledge now, would it? Right. Um, when you sign a contract, it's not to sign a con the terms are that you're agreeing to term. You're not just agreeing to whatever you would think the terms are. You agree to sort of what the objective meaning of the terms are. That's what that's actually how contract law works. You remember that from contracts class. Um, it also, by the way, in contract law, it's the meaning of the terms at the time of formation. That's the time. Right. That's the relevant time in contract law. Originalism is the same way. So everybody who takes an oath is committing themselves to follow the meaning of this of this text. Um, and that would mean that oath would mean nothing if it was whatever was up to the interpreter or the ever was up to the person applying it. So the meaning has to be independent. And of course, the meaning is we, the descriptive argument is that the meaning of this text is actually what it said when it was adopted. Um, I do want to stress, though, it was adopted at different times in history. So it was changed. Some, there, there's another thing we need to say about originalism that's really important. And that is that the Constitution we have today is not the Constitution of 1787. It's been amended 27 times, and it's been amended in extremely fundamental ways, ways that have changed the nature of our government system. Uh, the most important, the first and earliest and most important changes uh, were those in the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which changed the relationship of the states to the federal government, changed the relationship of the citizenry to their states. Um, it meant that we now have federal protections of our fundamental rights against our states, which we didn't have before 1868. Secondly, later on, the right to vote was expanded. First, it was right, expanded in the 15th Amendment uh, to African-American males. And then later in the 20th century, it was expanded to all females, uh, whatever race. Second, in addition, a progress, a, a, an income tax was authorized. In addition, the Senate is no longer uh, decide, uh, chosen by state legislatures, but it's chosen by popular elections uh, by the people of each state. So the Constitution that is in effect today is not the Constitution of 1787. It's the Constitution as it has been changed. That is the one that we're called upon to say whether it is good enough to be followed. 
whether it is a constitution that is good enough to merit obedience uh, on the part of those who take an oath to uphold it, um, and then uh, not the constitution of 1787. And that does get at some of the other objections to originalism, and that is that it was written by, by slaveholders, and it was written a long time ago, and uh, various uh, minorities and women were not adequately represented in the process then. All of those things are true up to a point, uh, but they're somewhat irrelevant to the, because the constitution we have is not their constitution. It's a fundamentally changed constitution. Now, you mentioned this conception of the Constitution as frozen in time, and I think that's a view pretty regularly attributed to originalists. This is, of course, in opposition to the view of judicial pragmatists who paint the Constitution as a living document, one that evolves and adapts to new circumstances, even if it's not amended, which you importantly noted earlier, because you say originalists will only allow for changes through a formal amendment being made through the processes outlined in Article 5. So this seemingly inflexible requirement may get criticism from pragmatists who would argue that the document needs to be more malleable and reflect the changing views of contemporary society in order to better serve the people. But in your book, The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, you sort of seem to quell these concerns to some degree. You say, okay, the original meaning of the 14th Amendment doesn't change insofar as it originally authorized the federal government to protect civil rights of citizens. That's unalterable. But what does change over time, maybe, is what the political culture has deemed counts as a constitutionally protected civil right. So it seems like even in your originalist interpretation, there is maybe room for the role of the Constitution to be more dynamic than on first blush. Is that right? Um, there's two. There's two senses. The Constitution. The idea that the Constitution is frozen is not necessarily helpful. Uh, way of thinking about it. The text is fixed. The meaning of the text is fixed. That's what all originalists believe, regardless of which variation of originalism that originalist they may be. But that fixed text still needs to be applied to the present day circumstances um, that the people who wrote the text were probably or could very well have been unaware of or maybe even disagreed about. Um, the best example I like to use about this is a case called Bradwell versus Illinois, um, which denied a woman a right to practice law in the state of Illinois. Um, you know, it's obvious that what, what the question is, why did they do that? Well, the majority in Bradwell said um, the right to pursue a lawful occupation is not a right protected by the 14th Amendment. All right. Well, it's not a protected for anybody. It's not protected for women. It was not protected in the slaughterhouse cases for white male butchers. It's just not a protected right. This gets us to the subject of this podcast, which is unenumerated rights. Right. So it was an unenumerated right. It's not protected. All right. However, there were dissenters in Slaughterhouse in the case that said it, a whip, that white butchers didn't have this right. And they said it was a right. And it was, in fact, being unreasonably restricted in the Slaughterhouse cases decided the day before Bradwell. In Bradwell, uh, all but one of those dissenters turned around and said that it was correctly that that, that right does exist, but it wasn't violated. Uh, in the case of women, because for a number of reasons, one is because women's natural place is to be in the home. It's not to be in the workplace. The other one was that under the rules of coverture, women's legal identity um, is joined with that of their husbands and therefore they can't sign contracts. That's something an attorney must be able to do. So for all these reasons, 
the restricting women from practicing law was a reasonable regulation on the part of the Illinois legislature of that right. Now, there was a dissenting opinion in that case, which people don't remember because there was no opinion. There was a dissenting vote, and that was by the Chief Justice, Justice Salmon, Chief Justice Salmon Chase. He argued that this did violate um, a woman's fundamental right to pursue a lawful occupation. In other words, he argued both the white butchers and women had the right, and it violated both of their rights. We are not bound um, by, the, by the concurring justices' view of women in applying a right to pursue a lawful mm-hmm. occupation to women today. All, that, all their claims about women's natural state and all their claims about coverture, which no longer exists, don't bind us. What binds us is the letter of the constitution they wrote, which clearly applies both to men and women alike. And that's something that even one of the justices then, Sam and Chase, understood at the time. In, 17, in 1873, he knew that, and we know that. And so that's the sense in which the Constitution is not frozen, uh, because the application of it is going to be adjusted to changing our views of changing facts and circumstances. Right. And, you know, and since you alluded to um, that time period, you, you talk you know, you have an extensive amount of scholarship on both the 14th and 9th Amendment, both of which involve enumerated rights. And um, and just to recap for our listeners, in, in your book on the 14th Amendment, you are, you know, you say that it, again, profoundly changed the Constitution, gave the judiciary and Congress new powers to protect these fundamental rights of individuals from being violated by the states. But you argue, as you alluded to, you know, with judicial interpretation that we're not bound by, you argue that the Supreme Court has long misunderstood or ignored the original meaning of the amendment's key clauses. So uh, covering privileges, immunities, due process, equal protection, everything that we're familiar with. Um, and you contend that this amendment was actually the culmination of decades of debates about the meaning of the antebellum constitution from abolitionists that were putting forth arguments from natural rights, the Declaration of Independence, and the common law. Now, in this methodology, I think you you also utilize public meaning originalism in your analysis for, for the 14th Amendment, right, um, similar to your Ninth Amendment articles. And so I'm wondering, you know, can you tell us more about how your scholarship with the Ninth Amendment plays sort of hand in hand with, with, with the analysis and methodology that you used for the 14th Amendment? Sure. Um, well, first of all, uh, when I was a law student, um, I became completely turned off of constitutional law because (laughs) every time I got to one of the parts of the constitution that I thought were the good parts, I would turn the pages of the case book and see that the Supreme Court had basically said, well, that doesn't mean what it appears to mean. Including the Ninth Amendment. Including the Ninth Amendment. So um, the Supreme Court basically said the Ninth Amendment doesn't mean anything or it doesn't have any effect or um, it's a platitude as though this, as though the founders would create a whole constitutional amendment around a platitude. Um, and the same thing they said about the privileges or immunities clause in the 14th Amendment. They said th- similar things about at that in those days about the Second Amendment. They said similar things in those days about the Commerce Clause and whether that had any limits. And so by the time I was done with constitutional law as a law student, I said, well, I'm kind of done with the Constitution. It doesn't seem like it's worked out very well. Uh, if the Supreme Court's not going to pay attention to it, why should I? And when I started being a law professor, I started as a contracts professor. Um, not a constitutional law professor, I gradually got pulled into constitutional law. It's a long story I won't tell you about. But uh, I was was invited to give a speech 
And the punchline on constitutional law, I was very reluctant to give the speech because I didn't really know that much about it. And I, but I wanted to go. So I gave the speech and the punchline of my speech was the Ninth Amendment. Um, and after I gave the speech, it got a good response. And I went back to my office and, and I said, you know, I don't really know anything about the Ninth Amendment. So oh. that, I mean, I know what it says, but I don't know much about okay, it. OK, so I'm not alone because in, in my experience of law school and in bar prep and then certainly in practice, I felt like. I felt like our con law professor, shout out to Richard Friedman from Michigan Law, uh, I, felt, I felt like he counted straight from eight to 10. I'm pretty sure we didn't study a single case that really focused on the Ninth Amendment outside of a concurrence in Griswold. But you, know, you would agree that the Ninth Amendment has been largely ignored, not just by law professors, but even the Supreme Court. Yeah, well, it's been ignored by law professors because it's been ignored yeah, by the Supreme sure. Court, because they're just follow, they're trying to teach you. They have a limited amount of time, and they're right. just trying to teach you what the court's saying. And they're basically saying, forget about the Ninth Amendment. So they forget about the Ninth Amendment, except for this concurring opinion in Griswold. Right. I, I, I don't spend that much time on the Ninth Amendment in my own classes because I have other things I have to teach that are more significant for the students, but I do tell them about it. I, you know, I, I obviously I, I share with them my views of the Ninth Amendment. So no, you're not alone at all. Um, and the court, the court has in, you know, in my lifetime, ver at various times, seemingly become more interested in the Ninth Amendment, and then they eventually turn away from that interest and go back to not being interested in anymore. Yeah. So let's let's tell the audience what the Ninth Amendment says. It says. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Now, if you came down as an alien from another planet and you were trying to study the laws of the United States and you came to this provision and it said the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others, other non-enumerated rights um, retained by the people, you'd think that was pretty important. And by the right. way, since we've already covered the 14th Amendment, you would also think it was important that the Constitution says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities right. of citizens of the United States. That sounds even more important. Yeah. And yet the Supreme Court has equally read both of these clauses out of the Constitution. And it's and it's wacky to me that I mean, the ninth is in the Bill of Rights. You know, it wasn't even added on later as later amendment much, you know, a, a century later, it was in the Bill of Rights. It's, as you say, unquestionably part of our written constitution. So ignoring it would not have been possible without some theory that renders it without any function. So, and this theory, I think you call the, the rights powers conception of constitutional rights. Is that right? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Right. Well, it's basically the idea that the Ninth Amendment is a truism uh, because whatever, first you have to look at, see what congressional powers are are given to Congress, what powers are given to Congress. And if Congress has a power, it doesn't it can't violate any of the unenumerated rights. Mm -hmm. So what the, the unenumerated rights don't play any role here because all you have to do is look at congressional powers. Now, at the same time, this doc, this argument was being developed, congressional powers were being expanded and expanded and expanded mm -hmm. by Congress. And those expansions were being upheld by the courts. And so you, you saw the powers of government growing. Um, uh, of the national government growing um, without and the, being checked without being Amendment. checked by the Ninth Amendment. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the argument. Now, the thing is, is that we don't modern constitutional law doesn't treat enumerated rights that way. Um, it doesn't say that um, to see whether you have a right of freedom of speech. All we have to do is look and see, for example, if Congress is regulating its commerce power. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
um, which is one of its powers, right? Or the, to see if you have a freedom of speech, all that matters is whether Congress is exercising its right to raise and support armies. We don't say that. We say the freedom of speech qualifies the power of Congress to regulate commerce. The freedom mm -hmm. of speech qualifies the raising and supporting of armies. Um, and so we don't, we don't treat enumerated rights the way the court treats unenumerated rights. So is there any rule in the Constitution that bars treating unenumerated rights less than enumerated rights because they're unenumerated? Let me see. Let's see if there's a rule. Oh, how about this rule? The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Let me translate that. Just because a right is unenumerated is not a reason why it should be treated any differently to treat it than as an enumerated lesser. right. Right. So, or to give Congress right. more. So leeway. there actually is a rule in the Constitution uh, that says you shouldn't do this, but that's what they do. And so that's the power's rights conception. You also describe an alternative to this view based on what you call the power constraint conception of constitutional rights. And could you tell us about that one? Well, it's what I've just suggested. The First Amendment constrains mm -hmm. the exercise of power. You know, the freedom of speech constrains government power. The right to keep and bear arms constrains government power. That's the right that we view rights as constraining government power, not just what's left over after you've properly defined government power. So that's the rights constraining conception. And they seem to go kind of hand in hand. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically arguing that uh, just because a right is unenumerated doesn't mean it doesn't constrain government. Let's, let's give a, let's give the audience an example. Yeah. Of this, okay. How about the right to raise your own children? Now, I would think that that's a pretty fundamental right. Yeah, I don't think anyone would argue with you, but it's not in the text, right? It's not enumerated. No. And so what the position of the Ninth Amendment, the position that the t courts have taken about the Ninth Amendment is basically saying, well, maybe you have a right like that, but it's not a constitutional mm -hmm. right. Why is it not a constitutional right? Well, it's not in the Constitution. But do you really think that you don't, if the government went to take away our kids and to raise them themselves or to give them to somebody else to raise, that we wouldn't have a constitutional right against right. that? Uh, on the grounds that that right isn't in the Constitution, it's not in the text, it's an unenumerated right? I think not. Here's another right, although this is the, I like, the, the first one is probably less controversial than the second <laughs> one, the right of self-defense. Mm. The right of self-defense is one of the most fundamental rights anybody has. Um, now, it's not the right of self-defense using nuclear weapons. It's not a right of self-defense using any means necessary. But everybody, if they're attacked, has a right to fight back. Is the right to self-defense in the first eight amendments of the Constitution? No. In some respects, and this is, the, this is actually an accurate rendition of the founding, these rights were too fundamental to put mm. in the text. Because at least as one congressman said when discussing whether the right of associate, the right of assembly should be put in there, um, <clears throat> one of them said, why put the right of assembly in there? It's so fundamental. It's kind of, it's, it's, it, it's beneath the dignity uh, of the people uh, of the Congress to put the right of assembly in there uh, because everybody knows there's a right of assembly. Why do you have to put it in the writing? And then somebody else replied to him, well, the right of assembly has been violated. And so, so it, it helps to have the security of having putting it in the writing, which explains sort of why the rights got in there that got in there. Number one, they've been the ones that were the mo most at, at contested and the most at, at risk. At the time. At the time. 
Uh, and the other ones is that in some cases, the Bill of Rights adds additional rights to us that we don't have in the state of nature. So let me go. This requires me to go back and talk about what are the rights retained by the people? What is the sure. original meaning of the rights retained by the people? And there's scholarly disagreement about this question. I need to tell the audience that. So from now on, you're just going to hear my view of what the original meaning <laughs> okay. is. Uh, but in my view, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that the rights retained by the people is a reference to natural rights. Natural rights are the rights we all have government before we have before we form a government. It, 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 think of human rights, like the right to be free from torture. We call that a human right. That's a right that precedes government. It's independent of government. Governments exist to protect our rights, but those the government doesn't create those rights. Okay, those are the rights retained by the people. Retained when retained when they enter into civil society, when they enter into a social compact with a government, they retain these fundamental natural rights, like, for example, the right of self-defense, like, for example, the right to raise your own children, like, for example, the right to marry. These are all rights you had prior. The right to marry, by the way, originally meant the right to procreate. The right to procreate um, was one of these rights you had, and you enter into a civil society to better protect these rights, not to violate them. That's what the rights retained by the people are about. However, the con those are not all the rights we have. Those are not natural rights are not all the rights we have in a state in a civil society. We also have additional rights that government creates in most cases to better protect our natural rights. The most ex obvious example of this is the trial by jury, the right to a jury trial. There's no right to a jury trial in the state of nature. There's no right to a jury trial before there's a government. But the right to the jury trial is put in the text of the Constitution, and it needs to be in the text of the Constitution because it's being created by the Constitution as a way of mm -hmm. protecting our rights so that you won't have your rights taken away from you except by the due process of law, which would include a jury trial. And so some of the rights had to be put in the Constitution because they were not rights retained by the people. And all the Ninth Amendment says is that if it's one of the rights retained by the people, it doesn't need to be put in the Constitution to be a fundamental right. Now, you note that five distinct models of rights of the Ninth Amendment from originalist interpretation have emerged. Um, the state law rights model, the residual rights model, the individual natural rights model, the collective rights model, and the federalism model. Um, you say the first two of these models, the state law and residual rights models, they lead to the conclusion that the Ninth Amendment is, as you said, a constitutional truism um, with no practical significance in adjudication. And that under the collective rights model, the third one, the amendment still has a very limited scope. And instead you advocate for both the individual natural rights model and the federalism model, because you say that they accord the Ninth Amendment a significant role in constitutional interpretation. Um, could you give us at least a summary of these last two that you advocate for? <laughs> Um, sure. Well, I, in a way, I kind of already did. I yeah, previewed yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, which is what reminded you of, exactly. the, of, of the question. <laughs> um, and that is that, um, and, and this is a claim about what the evidence shows about the original meaning of these words in the text. This is not a claim that I like this and therefore the Constitution says this. It's because it's a claim that this is what these words meant. Rights retained by the people, when you look at the evidence, is a reference to natural rights and what natural rights are are the rights we have before we these are fundamental human rights we have before we found government and the rights we form government to better protect um, than we can ourselves without government 
Mm-hmm. So that's the that and so to under to to appreciate whether I'm right or not, you have to look at the evidence. And in that Texas Law Review article, the Ninth Amendment it means what it says. I summarize these models, yeah. and then I go through all the at that time the available evidence of the original meaning that I was aware of, and I ask which of these models is are does this evidence fit, and which of these models does this evidence contradict, and then which model explains most of the evidence, uh, the, uh, more of the evidence than any other model, and I think it is the uh, individual rights uh, model. And and so yeah, the individual rights model and the federalism models afford a, a bigger role for the Ninth Amendment in constitution. They have that consequence. I'm not advocating I see. for them because they have a bigger role. I'm yes, saying that was the my consi- question. Yeah, the, the Ninth Amendment has a bigger role because these models are closer to the original meaning than the competitors are. Um, and so that's why, uh, we sh- that's why we should recognize that the, Const- the Ninth Amendment may have a bigger role. I see. Okay. And, you know, and you describe that the history of the Ninth Amendment interpretation as relatively recent in interest, uh, gaining interest around starting maybe in the 80s or so. Um, So what happened in the late 20th century to start up a new interest in Ninth Amendment interpretation? What happened was a fundamental shift away from evaluating legislation on uh, on the basis of what the scope of legislative power is to basically saying legislatures have essentially unlimited powers, except where there's an enumerated right. And you may remember from law school something called footnote four of a case called United States versus Caroline Products, which is the most famous footnote in the history of the Supreme Court. That's the milk case, right? It it is indeed. (laughs) I remember something from law school. (laughs) It's the filled milk case. It's about uh, whether whether it was legal to market a product called filled milk, which was basically skim milk, which was enhanced with uh, coconut oil uh, in order to get, make it taste more like whole milk. So they would skim off the butter fat, and then they would add this whole this vegetable oil uh, in order to um, uh, make it taste more like whole milk. And that was made illegal be- in part because the dairy industry didn't like it. And so the dairy industry at that uh, was very powerful in Congress. So they, pe- they got a States to pass a law against it, then they got the Congress to pass a law against it, um, the Filled Milk Act. Um, that's a whole other story. But the case is very famous uh, because in this footnote, it in the body of the case, it basically says there's a presumption of constitutionality that we should just presume laws are constitutional unless we show that they're not. But in the footnote, it says there's a limited scope for the presumption of constitutionality. And the first of three different theories about when there should not be a presumption of constitutionality has to do when there are rights that are expressly prohibit. There's express prohibitions in the Constitution, such as in the first 10 amendments or in the 14th Amendment to the extent that the first 10 amendments apply to the states. So it's what drew attention to giving special treatment to the first 10 amendments, mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. what they meant was the first eight amendments because the ninth and 10th weren't- d- And employ even... a higher standard of review, well, strict scru- scrutiny, right? Right. So this is where you get heightened scrutiny, two tiers of review, heightened scrutiny. Eventually they eliminate um, the lower degree of scrutiny. The lower degree of scrutiny was still meaningful in those days. The rational basis test. Yes, only yeah. before it was the rational basis test, it was what you call arbitrariness review mm. or rationality review. It actually had some bite. It actually was significant. Um, you could show, you could prove a law was irrational as applied to you by presenting evidence. But after the rational basis test was adopted in 1955, in a case called Williamson v. Optical, 
that made the presumption irrebuttable. You would always, you'd, the government would always be able to meet their burden as long as you could, a judge can imagine a possible reason why the legislature might have adopted it. That's good enough. And since mm-hmm. you can always imagine a reason, that means that level of scrutiny, as you learned in law school, is basically, you know, claim the, the plaintiffs lose. That's what right. that, that's what that, if all you have is rational basis scrutiny, then you're going to lose. That put all of constitutional rights into the enumerated rights basket. That formulation has now led us down a path in which the only rights that actually get any degree of protection are the first eight amendments. So that is kind of the position the court initially took, but they couldn't hold to it. When they were presented with a contraceptives ban in Connecticut, in the case of Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965, they basically acknowledge that there is this unenumerated right to privacy that the courts could protect. In, in a concurrence, right? Well, the majority says there's an unenumerated right to privacy. Uh, yeah, sure. And they, but and in terms of in terms but, of putting in the Ninth Amendment, right? Then, right. It, well, the majority cites the Ninth Amendment as a series of things, but the but there's a concurring opinion by Justice Goldberg mm-hmm. that says, you know, um, don't don't object you can't object to this on the grounds that there's no right of privacy in the text of the constitution because the ninth amendment says that there doesn't have to be in the text of the constitution for it to be a fundamental right and well, he was that, arguing that that was sufficient like the ninth amendment in itself was sufficiently justified uh no nah, he didn't actually argue he, he was more careful than that frankly he mm-hmm. he he used it to negate an argument against um uh recognizing it because it was unenumerated he didn't put all his eggs in the ninth amendment basket one of, one of the reasons why he didn't is because it was a state law and the state law is governed by the 14th amendment mm-hmm. uh, not the ninth amendment directly um which is really much more about how you constrain how you interpret federal power so what happened is when we prior to that the way the, the way the courts would look would evaluate legislation is in the federal level is it within enumerated an enumerated power or one of the implied powers that the necessary and proper clause acknowledges or at a state level was it within the state's police power but that required a theory of the police power that was not an unlimited power to do whatever they wanted once you threw away that system which was in effect for most of our history in one form or another and then you said oh no legislatures can do whatever they want unless they violate an enumerated right, mm-hmm. that's going to lead a lot of people to say, hey, hey, what about that Ninth Amendment over there? Right. That looks like it's being violated by what you just said, which is what I said when I was a law student. Um, and so that gave rise at that point mm-hmm. to a strong interest in the Ninth Amendment. I think from Griswold, the, the cases that have encapsulated this question of privacy in amongst other unenumerated rights um, or rights that are in the penumbra um, haven't really gone back to the Ninth Amendment. They've really relied largely on the 14th. Do you think that, especially in the wake of Roe being reopened, um, there is room or a realistic probability of the Ninth Amendment making uh, another play? Well, Planned Parenthood versus Casey was also mentions the Ninth Amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I, th- I actually think uh, Lawrence v. Texas, the gay rights case, uh, would mention the Ninth Amendment as well. So it has been mentioned in passing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think it's, it's that likely for the Ninth Amendment to be brought back today, because I think a lot of conservative justices um, are um, skeptical about the Ninth, Ninth Amendment, because they're skeptical about judges, quote, making up rights, unquote. And 
I share their concern about that. So um, I think it's important to separate out what is the meaning of the text of the amendment? Mm -hmm. That's question number one. And the question number two is what should judges do about it, if anything? Because the amendment doesn't say anything about judges. It just says these are rights and they should not be denied or disparaged. But then again, the First Amendment also doesn't say anything about judges, neither does the Second Amendment. None of the amendments say anything about what judges should do about them. That's a separate question that relates to judicial competence and whether um, um, the express recognition of a right is the best way of protect by judges is the best way of protecting the right against the legislature. It may or may not be. You might ask, well, how are you going to protect it if judges don't protect it, right? Um, that, that would be an obvious question. Well, judges should keep these rights in mind. I think they should, my view, my approach, which is not the, is, is the approach that existed before Caroline products. And that is that we should really be looking at the scope of legislative powers. We should really be looking at the scope of federal power under, under, the, under the Constitution, under Article One, and see whether a, a law is proper to the exercise of one of those powers with these rights in mind. Um, so the rights are there in the background. They are important because they argue for a constrained view of power, but we should really be focusing on whether something is really within the competence of a legislature to do rather than look at um, take a right and basically say, if there's this right, legislatures can't do anything about it. Let me let me just say one more thing about this. There is a standard misconception in the general public um, and amongst some of us in law, when we're not thinking about it really clearly, and that is to think that if you have a right, a constitutional right, you automatically are going to win. So that's why everybody says, I, I have my right, I have my right, because if I can successfully say I have the right, then that means I'm automatically going to win my case. That has never really been true, even though there's a kind of an image that is true, because everybody agrees and all the way back to the founding, that rights may be reasonably regulated. So the fact that you have a natural right doesn't mean that when you enter into civil society, the exercise of that right might not be regulated in order to prevent you from doing harm to other people, from violating other people's rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go back to contract law, something that's not controversial. In the state of nature, I would say you have a right, a fundamental right to enter into agreements with other people. This is a fundamental right you have. But when you enter into civil society, there's a contract law that's going to regulate the making of those contracts um, to figure out what is a contract, what's not a contract, what the remedy should be for breach of contract. It's very complicated. Um, And so that I think the most libertarian person in the world is going to allow for the fact that that there can be a law of contracts to regulate the making of contracts, which you should be free to do. So. What we really should be looking at, what we should be focusing at is whenever a liberty is being restricted, is it a reasonable regulation of that liberty? And we don't just answer that by saying what's reasonable or not in our opinion. You have to go and look and see what is the argument being made on behalf of regulating this liberty and do, is, it, is it supported by any kind of evidence or support or is it just the will of the legislature, which is what used to be called arbitrary? Is it just we, we don't want you to do this or is there a good reason for doing this? And that situation, that judgment can change over time. So let's take an example of the pandemic. In the beginning of a pandemic, when you have no idea what the true scope of the danger is, 
And we have no idea exactly what the nature of the virus is and how it's transmitted. And government says, yeah, but look, we have, it's our job to protect the health and the safety. We're going to regulate liberty in order to protect people from getting sick, which is going to you know, be a, uh, uh, make them worse off, right? And in the beginning of a pandemic, they might just try a bunch of stuff. But as the pandemic proceeds and you learn more and more about how the virus works and whether these means that have been adopted actually have an effect on preventing you know, disease or pr protecting people's health, then individual people whose liberty is being restricted ought to be able to go into court and say, what you're making me do is just not sufficiently related to the end you're trying to accomplish, which is public health, um, uh, on the basis of what we have now know about it. It was okay in the beginning when we didn't know anything about it, but now it's not. And so the government should be should have to when challenged like this, they should be mm -hmm. they should have to uh, defend themselves and present the reasons and the evidence on behalf of what their of their restrictions on liberty. In a case like this, and any other case that was like this, the rights retained by the people are playing a very important role. They're not playing a role in deciding whether this particular regulation is reasonable or not. It's, it's playing a role in saying the government must justify its regulation. They can't just do whatever they feel like. They have to justify it. So the rights retained by the people in the Ninth Amendment and the privileges or immunities in, in the, of citizens of the United States in the Privilege or Immunities Clause, the other clause that's been written out of the Constitution, they play a very important role because they, the, they say that ultimately, in the end, government must be able to justify when it's restricting our liberties in order to establish that it's a reasonable restriction on liberty or reasonable regulation of liberty rather than an unreasonable regulation of liberty. If we take this approach, it doesn't matter so much how we define all these rights. What matters is how does government justify what it's doing? Right. Um, and so it takes the pressure off defining rights. It increases the pressure of coming up with a theory about what's an appropriate role for government to have and what's an inappropriate mm -hmm. role for government to have. Should government be telling you what kind of sex to have? Should government could tell you what books you should read? Um, these are inappropriate for legislatures to have. We'd have to have a theory of that and we could debate that. And not everybody's going to agree about that. But that's what we should be arguing about. We shouldn't be arguing about whether you have a right to this or a right to that. That should be given, and it's given by the Ninth Amendment. And so um, I guess it's easy to possibly misinterpret, you know, your, your literature as, as advocating for an, a more expan a, an expansive view of the Ninth Amendment in that courts should expand on it. But is that, that's not necessarily the case. No. And in fact, I have always, going back to my earliest work, and that's my earliest work is like 35 years ago, mm -hmm. I've always argued in favor of what I said in this earliest piece I had. And I've changed my mind about a lot of things since mm -hmm. 1987 or whenever this book, this piece came out. But I always advocated for what I call the presumptive approach. And the presumptive approach was um, that you kind of presume the liberties of the people and then the government has to justify when it's restricting the liberties of the people rather than some idea that you know any unenumerated right i say we have or a judge says we have is from then on cannot be touched by a legislature period earlier you alluded to the fact that courts obviously if, if who is going to protect these unenumerated rights if not the court but you alluded to the legislature and um our second guest in this in this series on the ninth amendment is professor brian c Colt, who his literature focuses not on what courts should do with the Ninth Amendment, but what Congress can or should do with it. 
And he makes the case for um, a lot more congressional action protecting these rights uh, through legislation. Um, not so much with the president, um, you know, and that goes back to the point with uh, uh, President Biden recently uh, shining light on the Ninth Amendment in what a lot of people might think is a throwaway line. Um, Professor Kalt says that, you know, there's maybe some room for the president, but more as a mouthpiece, but certainly advocates for the role of legislatures in using the Ninth Amendment, not just the judiciary. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, it is the legislature's job. In fact, it's, it's the first duty of government to protect the rights retained by the people. That is their principal responsibility. Um, and courts should step in if the legislature is overstepping its bounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, in the first in the first move, the legislature should be doing this. That doesn't mean the legislature should be creating a lot of new rights. I think that's sort of what Professor Kalt might have been advocating for, creating <laughs> new rights. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. On the other hand, on the other hand, legislatures can create rights. They do all the time. You have a right to your social security check. There's no natural right to that. That's not one of the rights mentioned by the Ninth Amendment. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a congressionally created right as a result of a, of a, of this scheme. So there's nothing Congress has lots of powers to create rights without the Ninth they don't need the Ninth Amendment for that. They have their powers for that. The Ninth Amendment is there to say, yeah, but they can't do anything they want and they can't actually make up any right they want. If making up a right is actually, uh, if if a new right they create is going to undermine one of the rights that they didn't create, the rights that precede the formation of government, then they can't do that. Yes, legislatures are the more the should be the most important players in this. And the, and the judge's job is just to keep them within their powers. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Ninth Amendment plays a role in justifying judges keeping the legislature within their powers. But more of a, a check on legislating new rights rather than an incentive or a source of power to legislate yeah, new yeah, rights. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. The Ninth Amendment is not a source of power really to anybody. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a, it is a justification for an independent judiciary constraining the governmental powers of the other branches. So lastly, Professor Burnett, going back to the reason why we decided to do a podcast episode on the Ninth Amendment out of nowhere was basically, again, President Biden seemed to invoke it out of nowhere, you know, wanting to pick a, a, a judicial nominee that respects the Ninth Amendment or at least knows what it is, unlike apparently a lot of lawyers. Um, what do you think about that statement? Broadly. Well, it's not a was not a surprise to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not out of nowhere. Um, he is hearkening back to his youth. Um, I don't know. Maybe he was in his fifties or sixties in his youth. I don't remember what he, how old he was in nineteen eighty seven. Um, but this is an art. This is a card that he played, and other members of the Senate Judiciary Committee played against Robert Bork, who was nominated to be on right. the Supreme Court by President Reagan, and who said he was an originalist. He was yeah. a self-identified originalist. And what the Democrats on the on the Senate Judiciary Committee um, uh, said, and there's some reason to think they were coached to say so by a, by a professor who's passed away recently named Walter Dellinger, um, is to ask him, ask him about what he thinks about the Ninth Amendment. 
because you're supposed to be an originalist, but you're also saying you're for judicial restraint. Well, what do you say about this thing called the Ninth Amendment? And so Senator Biden, who was then chairman, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Biden, asked about the Ninth Amendment. So did other senators, including uh, Senator Dennis DeConcini of Arizona. They kept asking Bork about the Ninth Amendment. Mm -hmm. Uh, He gave a number of answers. Bork did. But eventually, having been asked about it repeatedly, he gave the following answer. Uh, which I'm going to paraphrase from memory, and that is that Congress, uh, Cong- Senator, it's as though there was an ink blot on the Constitution, right? And uh, you cannot read what's under the ink blot. I don't believe judges should make up what's under the ink blot, mm-hmm. and that became a very famous, in fact, an infamous statement yeah. uh, by Robert Bork, which even the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal editorialized against the day after he said that thing. Um, because it seemed pretty disrespectful to an amendment of the Constitution. Uh, so for Senator Biden, for Senator Biden, this was the ultimate gotcha question uh, to address to an originalist. Um, now, at the time that this happened, I had several projects in the works. I had a Cornell Law Review article in press. I had a book contract uh, with an anthology of previously published Ninth Amendment scholarship, and I had organized a symposium of the Chicago Kent Law Review about the Ninth Amendment, none of which had appeared yet. And then then Robert Bork makes this statement, and I'm able to take that statement and plug it in to the top <laughs> of all these things I was about to publish. I know, you put it in your work. <laughs> and then it comes out, my stuff comes out within Perfect a few timing. months. And everybody, because everybody's all excited about the Ninth Amendment, and I'm the first person to market with a theory of the Ninth Amendment. Uh, so that actually is what made, what made me, gave me my first big splash. Um, and if, I was on a program with Robert Bork um, uh, years later, and he was intro- supposed to introduce me, and he reads my bio out loud, and he says, Professor Barnett is the uh, editor of this book, The History and Meaning of the Ninth Amendment, and he says, this sounds like a, a book that you know maybe I should read. Um, and so I got up, and you know he was being very gracious, and I got up and I said, yes, uh, uh, Judge Bork, um, um, but I have to say I'm very appreciative of you, because if it hadn't been for what, if it hadn't been for you, there wouldn't have been such a big market for my scholarship <laughs> on the Ninth Amendment. And he thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So ju- so the president is hearkening back to mm-hmm. one of his greatest hits. Okay. Um, and so it's not out of left field. Um, uh, it just shows that uh, he's never forgotten his one of his one of the highlights of his career was was knocking down poor Bob Bork uh, for not being able to answer a question about the Ninth Amendment. And now it might be a question that's posed to the next judicial nominee in her. Yeah, I'm looking forward. I'm yeah. looking forward to hearing what she has to say about. She that. better brush up on that one. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Professor Barnett. It was a real treat, um, and you know, wish you the best in all of your future scholarship. Well, everybody should go out and buy my book, The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment is Letter and Spirit, because then you're going to find about about how the Privileges <laughs> and Immunities Clause is like the Ninth Amendment as applied to states. Um, and why that's as important for restricting the powers that states have over us as the Ninth Amendment is in restricting the power that the federal government has over us. Yeah, it seems like a really interesting book. We can link it in our show notes as well for our readers. Thanks again, Professor Barnett. 